Welcome back to The Complete History of Coffee, Episode 8, Penny University. If you have not already, please consider supporting the show by becoming a Patreon member. For the price of a latte a month, you can help keep the show going while receiving exclusive content, members-only episodes, and drawings for special prizes for this and all of our future series within the Complete History Podcast series. Speaking of lattes, let's go ahead and get into our coffee tasting for this episode. Today I'm drinking a latte, which is technically an Italian drink, but I wanted to go ahead and do it today because we didn't get to do it on our Italian episodes, and I wanted to try this before we shifted out of Europe and go westward. Now, a latte obviously is coffee made as an espresso and added with milk. So espresso is Italian. It comes from the Italian word meaning fast, and then latte simply means adding milk to the drink. So this latte was made with regular milk, and I used a blonde espresso roast. Let's start by smelling it. So it definitely smells very sweet. Um, there's a subtle roasty flavor to it. I'm also getting a little bit of the chocolate nutty notes. I did smell the espresso before I mixed it in with the milk. It's definitely probably a Latin American-based coffee because of that chocolate nutty. Probably getting a little bit of the soft sweet notes because it's a blonde roast. Let me try tasting it. So it is a little roasty. Um, there is a little bit of that sweet. I think the milk really adds to it. Adds a little bit of sweet creaminess to it. We get the concept of pulling a shot of espresso because on old espresso bars, a barista would actually have to pull a lever which would push the pressure of the water through the puck of coffee to create the espresso. While this is the 10th podcast in the series, we are technically only on episode 8 of our coffee history story. So with this in mind, I would like to invite you all to ask any questions you might have about coffee history thus far, or anything you're curious about in regard to coffee in general. I am also welcoming suggestions for the show, maybe if there is something you want more of or less of. And I'm also opening the floor to questions anyone may have about me personally or even the show, such as how I research, write, record, or edit the show. Episode 10 will be a recap of everything we have covered so far in the show, so if anything feels hazy by then or something was altogether forgotten, no worries, we will have a nice little recap. Once upon a time, there was a woman in the highlands of Scotland. She had long white hair and was said to wander the forest wearing all green. She loved nature so much that she became known as the Guardian of the Woods. One day she was enchanted by the Fae and turned into a supernatural being. Her cry was not of this world sounding like that of a banshee. While few have seen her and lived to tell the tale, she is said to be either an old crone or a shadow. But many seen her say she appears as a beautiful woman to them, often in the form of someone they know, and then lure them away. Once they are in a trap, she changes form into a half-woman, half-goat monster, killing them and drinking their blood. This woman is known as the Glastig, and is similar to a siren, the 
half woman, half fish, or even chicken, who lured men to their deaths by using the smell of roasting coffee and offering free cups of the drink to lure men to their death. Or at least one may wonder if that's the reason Starbucks uses a siren as their logo. Clearly, sirens weren't dressed up in little green aprons holding free coffee signs, but it would have made for an interesting alternative mythology if coffee had existed in ancient Greece. The story of the glass dig comes from the Celtic folklore of what is today the United Kingdom. This episode, we will be taking a look at coffee in England and examining social conflict between men and women in England in relation to coffee. Last episode, we talked about coffee's relation to revolution. In this episode, we find coffee and revolution continue to be almost inexplicably tied together. Coffee began in England on the heels of the beheading of Charles I in 1649, following the English Revolution. The first Englishman to mention coffee was in 1600, when the clergyman William Bidolph wrote of the Turks, stating their, quote, most common drink is kaffa, was a black kind of drink made of a pulse like peas called koya, which being ground in the meal and boiled in water, they drink it as hot as they can suffer it, end quote. A decade later, George Sandys described coffee as, quote, black as soot and tasting not much unlike it, end quote. This clearly shows our natural aversion to coffee due to its bitter taste. So why did England grow to love coffee? Many felt it was not part of English culture like wine and beer were, so why drink it? In 1650, Henry Blunt made a statement on the question of our natural aversion to coffee and tobacco, noting they, quote, universally take with mankind and yet have not the advantage of any pleasing taste wherewith to tempt and debauch our palate, as wine and other such promiscuous things have. For at the first, tobacco is most horrid and coffee insipid, end quote. So like tobacco, coffee is an acquired taste, much like alcohol or even marijuana. One could ask an alcoholic or a stoner why they enjoy something which may be distasteful to many others. They may argue they enjoy the taste, the act of consuming it, or the mind-altering effects of it. Coffee, too, is often enjoyed for its acquired taste, has mind-altering effects, and gives people a caffeine buzz. And many love consuming it as part of coffee culture. I argue further than people may also get addicted to coffee, like any other drug, or they may feel pressured to do it as coffee culture is so prominent in our modern society. These factors had existed in the Islamic world, would extend into Europe, and still persist in our modern society. Many of the English viewed coffee as an Islamic drink, arguing it was from an anti-Christian and inherently tyrannical group. We see this from writers of the time, which argue tyranny is in their nature, and we see it from multiple crusades in centuries prior, which were stated, in theory at least, to have been to push back Muslims in order to protect Christendom. Further, England at this time in the 17th century wished to not waste money on non-essential foreign goods. We also see Englishmen distrusting exotic herbs, medicines, and foods, arguing for British products instead. So why did it take off? 
One possibility is a wage increase and import tax decrease, which occurred in England's late 17th century. This allowed lower and middle class individuals to be able to now afford coffee. Another explanation may be a desire to purchase medical goods at a cheaper rate than those coming from Asia. This does contradict the English desire to not purchase foreign luxury items, but it does act as a potential explanation for other parts of Europe. Yet another explanation may be a result of socioeconomic pressures. There is a constant desire by people in the lower class of society to want the things that the upper class has, much like the desire for fame and interest in celebrities today. The upper class, too, was experiencing a social pressure to consume coffee, as it was an exotic acquired taste. So while the upper class was attempting to fit in with their peers and take part in this new coffee culture, the lower class likely developed a desire to obtain this new exotic drink of the wealthy. So which answer is correct? We may not know, however, it is likely a combination of factors that led to the rise of coffee's demand. Something else to take into consideration is the time frame in which coffee began to spread across Europe. Coffee first made a splash in Europe during the Renaissance, and coffeehouse culture would arrive in time for the Enlightenment. This period of time in Europe saw a desire for knowledge, including interest in foreign culture. It's possible if coffee would have come before this time to Europe, say during the late medieval period, it may not have piqued such an interest in the European elite. In England, coffee shifted from a drink with dangerous properties, as described by Francis Bacon in 1623, to a drink with medical properties. In 1650, the work Thetrum Botanicum mentioned the first botanical description of coffee in England. England's coffeehouse culture would become one of world renown. Most coffee in England was, at least initially, introduced by immigrants from Turkey. The first person in recorded British history to consume coffee in the country was Nathaniel Canopius, a Greek student at Oxford in May of 1637. Greece at this time, mind you, was under Ottoman control. Supposedly in 1650, a Jewish man from Lebanon named Jacob opened England's first coffee house, the Grand Café in Oxford. This may have been the case, although some suspect he simply worked as a server at the shop instead. The Grand Café was previously the site of a coaching inn, the Angel, in 1510, so-called after the Angel Meadow next to it. Anthony Wood mentions the coffee house, stating, quote, This year, Jacob the Jew opened a coffee house at the Angel in the parish of St. Peter, in the East Oxen. He sold it in Old Southampton building in Halborn near London and was living in 1671, end quote. The building became inherited by Frank Cooper, who expanded the shop in 1867 and his wife selling their overstock marmalade, which became Oxford marmalade. In 1900, Cooper opened his jam shop, and in 1919, it was taken over by the Twinning Brothers, becoming a Twinning Tea Shop. While the Grand Café holds historical uncertainty, the first documented coffee house in all of Europe was opened in London by a man from Turkey named Pasquale Rosé, sometime between 1652 and 54. A decade later, in 1663, there were 82 registered coffee house keepers in London. 
Rosé's Coffee House began as a stall in St. Michael's Alley after a man, Daniel Edwards, brought Rosé back to England in 1651. Edwards was a coffee importer and brought back Rosé as a servant from Turkey. The story then splits in two, with the men either having a falling out, which led Rosé to open his own shop, or alternatively, Rosé would serve coffee to his master's guest, and this led Edward to help Rosé open his own coffee shop. Merchants from the Royal Exchange would go to St. Michael's Alley, London's center for commercial business, to visit Rosé's coffee house, nicknamed the Turkish Head. The coffee stall was first described in 1654 as serving, quote, a Turkish kind of drink made of water and some berry or Turkish bean, somewhat hot and unpleasant, having a good afterwellish and caused some breaking of wind in abundance, end quote. Pasquet Rosé even created his own handbill titled The Virtues of the Coffee Drink and stated things such as, quote, ground to a powder and boiled up with spring water and about half a pint of it to be drunk. As hot as it possibly can be endured, it will prevent drowsiness and make one fit for business, end quote. Going on to warn, quote, you are not to drink of it after supper unless you intend to be watchful, for it will hinder sleep for three or four hours, end quote. Its health benefits are described as seen by people from, quote, Turkey, where this is generally drunk that they are not troubled with the stone, gout, droopsy, or scurvy, and their skin are exceedingly clear and white, end quote. He even created an ad in which he stated coffee would aid digestion, cure coughs, gout, scurvy, headaches, and prevent miscarriages. I personally can attest, I drink coffee to help with headaches, but I'm not sure to the validity of it curing scurvy and gout. Further, he said it prevents drowsiness and makes people fit for business. Coffee took off in popularity, similar to L, as water supplies were often contaminated in England, needing to be either mixed with alcohol or heated to kill the bacteria. During this period of time, beer was the primary drink of England, which caused drowsiness, so coffee was a great alternative for those who wished to promote watchfulness. As a result, tavern keepers felt Rosé was stealing their business but could not take legal action as he was not serving alcohol, so they instead shifted their legal argument as to his lack of citizenship. Rosé solved this by going into business with Christopher Bowman in 1654. Bowman was a member of the Worshipful Company of Grocers, a fraternity established for those running businesses which sold groceries. They moved the business across the street into a shed and turned it into a house-like set of rooms. Some speculate Rosé had to flee the country for some reason around this point, as there is no record of Rosé's involvement in the business past 1658, but Bauman was the sole signer on the new lease, and he continued to operate under Rosé's sign, the Turkish Head, until he passed away in 1662, leaving his widow in charge of the business until the Great Fire of 1666, which destroyed the building. Serge Jobson opened Oxford's Queen's Lane Coffee House in 1654, and it likely became a hotspot for scholars. The new coffee house in Oxford emerged alongside new disciplines in academia, including experimental philosophy and exciting inventions like 
the Reflecting Telescope. Great ideas on natural science and math were debated and formed at this coffee house. Many of these scholars were drawn to London, and by 1660, London was the primary place for such academic thought. Looking at the political and intellectual implications of coffee in England, coffee entered England during the end of the Third English Civil War, or right in the middle of the period known by some as the English Revolution. Many of the first coffee houses in Oxford and London were opened under the rule of Oliver Cromwell, a man who ruled as England's first and only Lord Protector from 1653 to 1658. This period of time is known as the Commonwealth Era, in which ideas of egalitarianism and anti-monarchic rule prevailed, along with a societal shift towards sobriety. Coffee, then, was the perfect drink. Already being associated with socio-political reforms in the East, it offered fuel for the rising age of enlightenment, not only in England, but in all of Europe. Coffee was fair game in regards to its anti-political use, with the English supporters of the monarchy, known as royalist, even meeting in coffee houses to discuss anti-parliamentary ideas. We can see an example of this in which the Earl of Clarendon proposed closing down coffee houses in 1666 to the Privacy Council. Another man, William Coventry, reminded him, quote, In Cromwell's time, the king's friends had used more liberty of speech in these places than they durst do in any other, end quote. In 1656, an apothecary, Arthur Tilliard, opened the first documented coffee house in Oxford after being, quote, encouraged to do so by some royalist now living in Oxen and by others who esteemed themselves either virtuosi or wits, end quote. British coffee houses were set up as egalitarian places for people to socialize as equals, having long tables for everyone to sit out without any sort of hierarchy. Coffee was brewed over a fire, being poured into pots for servers to take to customers, similar to restaurants today. The coffee was given to customers in bowls, known as dishes. A dish of coffee cost one penny, and so coffee houses became known as penny universities. Many of the men who frequented these penny universities were virtuosi. Tilliard's coffee shop hosted the likes of Sir Isaac Newton and Edmund Haley. Two men well-known for their contributions in science, and Hans Sloan, whose personal collection was the foundation for the British Museum. The importance of the coffee house is part of the reason it took so long for the beverage to become a household item. In 1700, coffee houses were massively popular in London, with over 2,000 coffee shops in London alone occupying more space and paying more rent than any other business type in the city. These penny universities were where people went to talk with their tablemates, even if they had never met them before. Each coffee house catering to specific people, such as actors, physicians, Protestants, Jews, Whigs, and a number of other social groups. No alcohol was served in coffee houses, as it was not permitted as to not inhibit men's wits. It was out of a coffee house that Lloyd's of London Insurance Company began, the Banker's Clearing House, and newspapers like the Tatler and the Spectre. 
coffee did face some pushback from women who came together in 1674 after being denied access to coffee houses and created the women's petition against coffee. They claimed men would get drunk at taverns and only sober up at the cafe, spending their whole day going back and forth between the two. Further, they disagreed with French physicians who claimed coffee made a man impotent and instead stated it had the opposite effect. There was a second petition made 26 years later called City Wife's Petition Against Coffee, which more or less paralleled the issues described in the first petition. Both petitions stated only men over the age of 60 should be allowed to drink coffee, since they are what we consider today to be retired, and therefore able to sit around and drink coffee and alcohol all day. Further, some women believed coffee bewitched men, similar to our glastig or a siren. In any case, the only women allowed in coffee shops were servers or prostitutes. As a result, tea became the more socially acceptable drink for women. This trend was set by certain women in the aristocracy, such as Catherine of Braganza, who introduced it to the English royal court when she came over from Portugal and married King Charles II in 1662. Charles then continued the oppression of coffee, likely due to political conversations from coffee shops, but perhaps on some level due to his wife's preference of tea. In any case, on December 29th, 1675, he banned coffee in a proclamation for the suppression of coffee houses. The ban was set to begin on January 10th of 1676, but two days before it could take effect, the king was forced to cancel the proclamation after facing a near revolution over coffee. The public prepared to overthrow him because of his coffee ban. To appease the people, Charles II allowed coffee houses to stay open for another six months if they paid a hefty fine and swore allegiance to him. This was ignored by most coffee shops, however, and they continued normal operations with men continuing their intellectual as well as political conversations. Queen Catherine's effects were still felt after this point as later Stuart monarchs Mary II and Anne would continue this trend of female tea drinking under both of their respective reigns. English society shifted gradually towards tea, and by 1730, most of the coffee houses had changed into private men's clubs. This was due in part to the British East Indian Trading Company growing tea at a lower rate and coffee being harder and more expensive to make. While coffee declined in England, it would soon gain popularity in a new rising power. Coffee came during England's revolution following Charles I, nearly sparked a second revolution under Charles II, and under George III would fuel revolution across the Atlantic in one of England's colonies. I speak, of course, of the coming revolution in America. Next episode, we will take a look at coffee in various parts of the world from European colonialism. The show is written and produced by me, Eric Zaffer. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. For the price of a latte a month, you can support this and future projects in the series. In this episode, we will be giving away a free Complete History of Coffee Penny University t-shirt to one of our Patreon supporters. 
And if you're interested in purchasing one of these t-shirts, then feel free to message us on social media or emailing us at the Complete History Podcast Series. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. And if you could take the time to please leave a review or a like, that would really go a long way for this show. Make sure to share this podcast with your family, friends, co-workers, and maybe someone you run into at a coffee shop. To close, here's a quote describing coffee houses in this period. Quote, So great a university, I think there ne'er was any, in which you may, a scholar, be by spending a penny.